our second keynote address is about ready to go. So have it. Will you take your seats, please? I'm going to go ahead and start introducing. I'm Delinda Hanley, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs News Editor and Executive Director of the American Educational Trust. Dr. Hanana Shrawi has broken through the glass ceiling that can prevent women around the world from reaching the top. She was the first woman to be elected a member of the Executive Committee of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 2009. She served as the official spokesperson of the Palestinian delegation to the Middle East peace process from 1991 to 1993 and participated in the 1991-1992 Madrid Peace Conference. In 1993, Dr. Ishrawi founded the Palestinian Independent Commission for Citizens' Rights, PICCR, to investigate Israeli and Palestinian human rights violations, recording her experiences in this side of peace, a personal account which she just signed at lunchtime. In 1996, Ashrawi was elected and subsequently re-elected many times to the Palestinian Legislative Council. In 1996, she also accepted the post of Minister of Higher Education and Research. In 1998, Ashrawi founded and continues to serve as MIFTA in MIFTA in the Palestinian Initiative for the Promotion of Global Dialogue and Democracy. It is night. It is not hyperbolic to say that Dr. Ishrawi has also broken through the Palestinian sound barrier, the wall of silence in America's media, which excludes Palestinian voices. She is the Palestinian Iron Dome. Whenever Israel sends warplanes, troops, and weaponized drones to attack her people, we can count on Hanan Ishrawi to be out there trying to stop the bombs and the Israeli propaganda. Her only weapon? her articulate, reasonable voice, and demand for justice and fair play. She will address the Israel lobby and the peace process. Welcome, Hanan Ishraq. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is indeed heartwarming and humbling. I thank you all for coming. Thank you, Delinda, for your invitation. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, uh, uh, Jan, for picking me up also, and all the people who made this possible. I'm delighted to be here with you, and I'm delighted to be part of this occasion, this endeavor, which in many ways is extremely timely and uh, it does respond to a sense of urgency, really, a need to intervene and to shape policy and discourse. And it's wonderful to hear all these, not just distinguished people, but very profound and persuasive people and courageous people, really, uh, who are speaking uh, truth to power and who are standing up for justice. I don't want to waste too much time because I have a lot to say. So you have to... You have to let me know ahead of time. As you know, this is a very significant occasion because we're talking about 170, 50, and zero. A hundred years since the Balfour Declaration, and I do hope that the Brits will not celebrate it, even though Theresa May invited Netanyahu to celebrate with her. This is the colonial legacy par excellence. Um, 70 years since the partition plan that did partition Palestine and created the State of Israel, at that time on 55% of Palestine, 50 years since the occupation of 1967, and zero time for the two-state solution. So I'm asked to talk about the Israel lobby and the peace process. I will focus on the peace process because you all know that the uh, Israel lobby is never absent. Whenever anything happens related to Palestine, it is there. And when it comes to the uh, peace process, they have always been a shaping force, intertwining, interweaving, intervening their presence, and at the same time, uh, 
maintaining their, I don't want to say control, but their influence every step of the way. They played a major role in shaping and influencing U.S. policy, particularly the peace process, and uh, since its inception, there's a sense of ownership that the peace process is owned by the Israeli lobby in many ways because they're looking out for the interests of Israel all the time. Uh, there were various components of the lobby. As you all know, they're not monolithic. They all had their impact here and there, but the most significant impact is for the lobby groups, the special interest groups that are closest to the Israeli government in particular. And that tends to be the more hardline extremist uh, groups, even though there were different voices, but uh, the greatest impact was by the more extreme uh, voices. Most influential, of course, APAC and its Washington Institute for Near East Policy, as you know, as a think tank that has probably had the most direct say in, in terms of the peace process itself. Uh, and other uh, organizations, Heritage Foundation and so on. So you have all these organizations that move from the extreme right to the center, like J Street that, that was being discussed before uh, this talk. And they all have a different type, set of requirements and different ways of intervening. Uh, there are different spheres and players. There's a diversity in the, the pro-Israel lobby. There's the private sector, and as you know, Adelson was trying to buy a president here, but he's also buying a prime minister in Israel. Um, Moscovich, who bought settlements, who built settlements in Jerusalem. Uh, these are individuals in the, pri the private sector that, that have had a direct uh, impact and direct intervention using their money uh, Haim Saban, and, uh, as you know, uh, in uh, Brookings, and down to the left, Danny uh, Abraham, who uh, has accompanied the peace process all along from a more liberal perspective. Uh, there are institutions and think tanks, individuals linked to them. The most significant, and you'll hear me talk about him often, not because I like him very much, but because he has been the most persistent, Dennis Ross, and <laughs> in and out, and uh, Martin Indyk and others. Then you have uh, uh, academic and uh, cultural individuals and spin doctors who have been a, a primary force in shaping public perceptions, including, you know, Krauthammer, uh, uh, Dershowitz, I'm sure you're hearing him now, um, Daniel Pipes, there are lots of people who are Israeli apologists and spin doctors. Then you have religious organizations and institutions, self-appointed Israeli apologists and defenders who take the Bible literally, many of them. And this is the extreme uh, Zionist Christian organizations. They are extremely dangerous in the sense that they do have a literal biblical exegesis that gives Israel license to do whatever it wants. And one of them told me once, you Palestinians have no right to exist because you're standing in the way of prophecy, of the fulfillment of the prophecy. So I said, it doesn't sound very Christian when you advocate genocide. <laughs> and then there are toxic organizations, as you know, and they have been very effective in distorting the Palestinian message and reality, like memory, you know, M-E-M-R-I. You should be aware of this. This is the most toxic organization. It is run by Egal Carmon, who used to be uh, the advisor to the military governor, then he became the advisor to Shamir on terrorism and so on. And he used to interrogate me once in a while. But now he has this organization with, with tremendous funds, and he monitors everything, and then he has access to Congress particularly, but to many decision makers, and he distorts. Uh, Palestinian utterance and, and uh, anything that is published, we can talk about this later. You have memory, you have NGO monitor that attempts to badmouth all Palestinian NGOs. You have the PM watch, which is also waiting for any Palestinian to open his or her mouth, and uh, they attack. And then you have publications. I'm sure you're hearing more and more about Breitbart, for example, Gladstone. Mm -hmm. These are extreme... Uh, right-wing white supremacist. Some of them are really anti-Semitic, but Zionist. Very interesting, this combination. 
Now, they influenced substance, structure, procedure, and priorities and objectives in the uh, peace process. They influenced terms of reference, and they influenced also the players, the, uh, and, and the predominantly the U.S. role in, in the peace process. Uh, I would like to mention that many of the individuals who were associated uh, follow the, uh, what I call, revolving door. They use the revolving door as a charge against Palestinians, that when people are arrested, they are released later. But here, revolving door in terms of their role. Many of them were in the State Department. Huh? And it seems that, uh, like Dennis and Martin, that they do go to the State Department, and then they leave and go to the Washington Institute or another pro-Israeli lobby. Then they come back through another door there in the State Department. Now we have uh, people in the White House who are not only uh, lobbyists and advocates, but who are active supporters of settlements. So it's not enough to have settlers in the Israeli coalition government. Now you have settlers in the White House. This is incredible. So they don't need to lobby. They are you know, decision makers, right? So that's what's happening. That, that frames, uh, in terms of influence, the peace process with this revolving door. You, you'll be surprised also that uh, Israel's ambassador, ex-ambassador Dan Shapiro, for example, decided to stay in Israel. Uh, and he's joined the Institute for National Security Studies, which is something that also Dennis joined at one point or another, Dennis Ross. So the, it's interchangeable. You know? Either they are influencing policy or they are making policy. And that's why American policy was so distorted, because they played a significant role in framing and defining the discourse and perceptions, but went beyond that to manipulating the verbal public space, anything related to, to the peace process. And they generated a narrative based on myths and providing and provided alternative facts. It's not Kellyanne who invented alternative facts. <laughs> We've been victims of alternative facts all our lives, you know? <laughs> alternative realities. Uh, and uh, they certainly willfully misled public opinion with their fabric. I don't want to go into details about the spin, about the Hasbara, as they call it, uh, but uh, it has been very active in shaping public perceptions and hence attitudes. So a, a distorted pattern em emerged that was totally weighted in favor of the occupation, generating a cyclical pattern, a vicious cycle, that totally subverted progress and led to the current impasse which has been in the making for quite a long time, since the beginning. And they ensured that the peace process maintained its parameters within the domain of Israeli priorities and interests. So now we are back at the beginning. I wanted to read you a quotation which, uh, from a paper in 1991, a, a position paper by the Washington Institute for Near East Affairs. And guess who wrote this? Martin Endick. This is March 4, 1991, just before the peace process started when uh, President Bush and James Baker were preparing for the 1991 Madrid process. And some of the things he says, I mean, could have been said, are being said right now. That's why I call it a cyclical pattern. He says, um, Israel now has a golden opportunity to deal with an indigenous Palestinian leadership in the territories before the PLO Phoenix rises again. Um, it's true the Prime Minister leads an unruly coalition of right-wing and religious parties unwilling to countenance territorial compromise in the West Bank. But if there is a genuine offer of peace from the Arab side, outside in, uh, he's acceptable to delivering a territorial compromise on the Golan Heights and an interim deal for Palestinian self-government, which leaves open the final status of the territories. This is the ongoing policy. I mean, all you need to do is go to the uh, Washington Institute website, and you will find all these policy papers. Now, there's another one. I'm not going to read all these things, but this one is the 
Transition 2017 toward a new paradigm for addressing the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, David Makovsky and Dennis Ross, Washington Institute. And this is another blueprint that was prepared to give to your new President Trump, and you have my full sympathy. <laughs> on how to address, because they want to confiscate the language once again, and confiscate the process once again, and decide how uh, it's going to proceed. Anyway, so the peace process, in terms conceptually, the influence was on the terms of reference. They made sure it dealt only with 242338, not uh, other uh, resolutions, uh, because 242338 deal with 67. They don't deal with 48 or the roots of the conflict, if you call it a conflict. They also made sure that there was no reference to sovereignty or statehood uh, for the Palestinians. No reference to the roots of the conflict, including refugees and so on, 1948, 181, Resolution 181. No international law. It must not apply. Only what the parties agree to in this asymmetry of power where you have occupied and occupied, you go and talk and you agree and we'll agree with whatever you decide. And of course, the, they used the Egyptian-Israeli Camp David Accords in order to define Palestinian uh, objectives or rights as autonomous. We need autonomy, functional autonomy, or self-government for the people, as though the Israeli control is a given and therefore you deal with self-government for Palestinians. No reference to Palestine as, uh, as a country or the Palestinians as a people or a nation. You've heard this construct, uh, Israel and Palestinians. It's never Israel and Palestine. It's never Israel and the Palestinians. It's Israel and Palestinians that we found by the wayside. You know? Uh, and again, I mean, look, Nikki Haley at the UN voted against Salam Fayyad, vetoed the appointment of Salam Fayyad as Deputy Secretary General to Guterres. Why? Because the appointment had the word Palestine. So we are guilty for existing. We are guilty because we have an identity. We are guilty because we are members of Palestine, <laughs> the Palestinian nation. Now, of course, you've read Uri Savir's article on, on Madrid too, or Moshe Alon's new article on let's give the Palestinians autonomy, or Netanyahu's speeches here and there, particularly in Australia, when he talked about transitional phases and functional approach. We will get to that later. But you have enough literature to see where they're heading with that. Now, on substance, the priority, of course, for the peace process was Israel's security. That was the primary objective. And Israel's security is defined in military terms and maintaining military control. Now, let us talk, if you want a demilitarized state minus or entity, then if you want a state minus, then it has to be demilitarized, and Israel has to have full military control, especially and control over the borders, the airspace, territorial waters, um, and, and with troop presence. And of course, they want the Palestinian Authority to be the security subcontractor, um, you know why Congress, Congress in its overzealousness, wanted to cut off all funds to the Palestinians. Huh? There was a resolution, what's her name? Uh, oh, I forgot her name. Anyway, she's the one who always comes up with these interesting resolutions about the Palestinian culpability a priori. Uh, Kay Granger. She's, uh, any of you from Florida? You're really blessed with two. Kay Granger and what's her name, Russ Lieutenant? Yeah, 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 the hyphenated name. It's, it's, the, it's obsessive with them. Anyway, but they've decided that they should cut off all funds from the Palestinians, then APAC went to them and said, no, 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 you can't cut off funds to the security forces. You have to keep give, paying the Palestinian security forces because they're good for Israel's security. Really? It's APAC that wanted funding for the Palestinian security force. So they want a subcontractor, and that to them is the primary function of any Palestinian security force. But also, funnily enough, this doesn't have to do with security, but I always like to say this, that the uh, 
Congress and its overzealousness to protect Israel, who was it? I think Jim was talking about how, or, or Nick, about how they are overzealous. Sometimes they want to outdo APAC, Congress members. Yeah, and their overzealousness to serve Israel and protect Israel, they took resolutions that gave us enormous power. They took resolutions that uh, any organization which accepts Palestinian membership will be defunded by the US and they will not pay their fees. They took resolutions that uh, uh, any uh, uh, convention or agreement that we accede to and so on will not be supported by the US. So what's happening? We told them, fine. We are going to join all of them. <laughs> this means the US will be isolated because it will have to leave all of them. So can you imagine what happens when we join WIPO, intellectual property? What will happen to all the patents and intellectual property of the US? Or when we decide to join the Atomic Energy Commission? <laughs> but they say if you join these things and if you accede to any uh, um, agreement or convention, that you will be punished. We will not fund you. But thank you very much. <laughs> Let's exceed and see what happens to the US when it has no say in any international organization. Huh? Anyway, that's overzealousness. Sometimes you go overboard when you punish yourself. And not only that, but we were supposed to be held this. I said this before, forgive me if I quote myself, it became a famous quote, I think, <laughs> that uh, we are being held responsible for the safety of our occupiers that the Israeli settlers and the Israeli uh, army can do whatever they want to us, and we are responsible for their safety. No Palestinian can act, not even in self-defense, because automatically the terrorist label comes out, and like a post-it, it's on your forehead, you're terrorist. Because a 14-year-old dared attempt to uh, strike at a soldier with carrying scissors. She was carrying scissors, but he was on Palestinian land as an occupation soldier, wearing bulletproof vests, wearing a helmet, and carrying a machine gun and uh, at a checkpoint on her own land. But she's the terrorist, he's the victim. And she was the one who was shot. So anyway, we are responsible for the safety of our occupiers. The Israeli army can go into areas A, and I hate this designation, but areas A in which they're not supposed to come in, and they can arrest, they can blow up homes, they can do whatever they want at will, but should the Palestinian security forces try to stop them, they're in serious trouble. They cannot, they're not supposed to stand up to the Israeli army. And should any Palestinian react to this intense injustice, then he or she is a terrorist. Now, in terms of the regional dimension, of course, it has become very clear and it has come back to haunt us. The, now it is called the outside-in approach, and it's a very sexy term now. I'm sure you've read this in, in all the new proposed uh, approaches to peacemaking. Outside-in, let's go to the Arabs, let's go to the region, let's put the API, the Arab Peace Initiative, on its head, let's normalize with the Arabs, and then we can deal with the Palestinians. This was, from the beginning, the Israeli lobby approach. Huh? Two tracks, Palestinian-Israeli track, Arab-Israeli track, bilateral track, multilateral track. Normalize, bring the Arabs to uh, uh, normalization with, the, uh, with Israel, and then the Palestinians will fall in step. Not just that, but you transform the Palestinian issue into a domestic issue within Israel. We can control, we'll deal with them. Therefore, it becomes a question of controlling the people uh, in Palestine. And we are uh, a domestic issue. I'm sure many of you have read the Herzog's 10-point uh, plan. Herzog is supposed to represent the more moderate, uh, what has become uh, the Labour Party in Israel that has been uh, renamed as the Zionist camp because they have to compete with Likud on Likud terms. You know, They have to show they are more right-wing and hardline than the Likud. Now he has a plan, 10-point plan. Again, 
functional approach, again, gradual approach, put the Palestinians on probation. We can, I will uh, talk about this later, but this is uh, uh, Netanyahu's constant theme, that the Palestinians live in population centers, fragmented and localized. And of course, the approach now is back to the village leagues approach. If you remember, many of you are young enough not to remember, but some of you are old enough to remember. The attempts to establish village leagues, localized communities, community centers, and so on. But it takes, it takes us back even further, where you can find collaborators who will collaborate with the occupation and then our lives. It takes us back to the Balfour Declaration, right? Didn't he say they want to establish a national home for the Jews, but at the same time a state? Uh, um, keeping in mind what the interests of the welfare, the well-being, without pre uh, prejudicing the non-Jewish communities in Palestine. <laughs> we are being now addressed as the non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Huh? Excuse me, I mean, the majority and the basis were Palestinian, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish. Huh? And some atheists, but they couldn't be officially atheists. I mean. <laughs> That's a majority. We're not the exception as being non-Jewish. Huh? Now it's the minority that has become the defining factor. Now we are the non-Jewish community, so we are back to 100 years ago. Um, of course, there were attempts at bringing together some Arab countries, like the Aqaba meeting, in order to come up with an agreement with Israel. This time it was Netanyahu who scuttled it. And the whole approach, of course, is the substance is not ending the occupation, but carrying out administrative functions, economic ease, the quality of life argument, which is now part of the Greenblatt uh, platform. <clears throat> and I remember when they offered us in the early 1980s to run our lives, they said, you can have all the powers and responsibilities of the civil administration. We said, no, thank you. We don't want to work for the occupation. We want the occupation to leave. Then we can run our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. So now this has become uh, another uh, focus. We are going back to the beginning and even pre-peace process. Four, maintain the strategic alliance between US and Israel. This was a, a constant focus. Uh, of the peace process. Uh, and it was brought to bear on everything that was done in that context. It thus enhanced the power asymmetry and the imbalance until now. <clears throat> the features of this alliance was accommodate Israeli priorities and demands, adopt their own uh, diction and, and perspective. I was going to say fiction. Yes, most of it is fiction <laughs> and perspectives always frame the relationship in terms of the Judeo-Christian traditions, uh, remember? And shared values. So I keep asking my American friends, what shared values? Uh, the values of occupation, of enslavement of a people, of impunity, of oppressing a whole nation, of carrying out extrajudicial executions, of demolishing homes, of stealing other people's lands, and so on. Are these the values you want to share with Israel? Is this the, the Judeo-Christian tradition? I don't know, I mean, really. And to me, it's very strange because automatically, the moment you find this fusion Judeo-Christian, you are excluding Islamic, Buddhist, any other tradition that does not belong to this club. And to me, uh, Islam is one of the most tolerant religions because it doesn't deny the existence of the others. <laughs> it builds on Judaism and Christianity while Judaism and Christianity supposedly cancel each other out, don't they? Anyway. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, the other myth is that Israel is the only democracy in the region. You hear that all the time. This is part of this uh, alliance. Even Theresa May talked about this huh? when she criticized John Kerry for uh, not vetoing the 2334 resolution on settlements. How dare you criticize the only democracy in the region and our best friend, our ally. Um, 
And the Palestinians, of course, are the alien, the other, the fearful, the incomprehensible, and even the Orientalist glasses, to quote uh, Edward Said, the late Edward Said, uh, have come out again. And of course, there is an automatic linkage between terrorism and Islam. And now it's becoming much more evident. See, never surprise Israel with any American statement, position, or document related to the peace process. This I know from experience, and they will admit it. The, <coughs> the American team, they always coordinated with the Israelis first on any American position. And they always cleared it up ahead of time with the Israelis. <coughs> and if you have the Greenblatt Friedman uh, <coughs> plan, also you should read it. It, was, it is called the policy paper for uh, Trump. He was candidate Trump, then it became Trump's policy paper on Israel. You will see how toxic it has become. <coughs> and it was read by him uh, as, as an APAC speech. Again, never allow or express any public censure or criticism of Israel. That's why they became so, they reacted in such a historical manner. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> ah, thank you. <coughs> they waxed ballistic just for the mere fact that the US abstained on settlements. When uh, a few years earlier, they had vetoed a resolution on settlements, which violate international law and so on. <clears throat> Therefore, they're not used to accepting any kind of criticism or censure, let alone sanctions. Always use the positive approach with Israel. Incentives, rewards, advance payments, inducements, and so on. When we started the talks, they immediately got the uh, Zionism is racism resolution repeal, uh, nullified, you know that. And then they got the, uh, diplomatic recognition, trade agreements, and so on. Another thing, <coughs> of course, in, in incentivizing Israel, including Europe, and I can give you many examples how Europe used this approach too. Conversely, you use pressure, threats, and blackmail on the Palestinians. Exploit the weakness of Palestine and augmenting Israeli power and control. Of course, this was a special contribution of APAC, ZOA, and others, the Council of Presidents, in drafting congressional resolutions that always adopted punitive measures against the Palestinians, especially if we joined organizations like the ICC and ICJ. How dare you hold Israel accountable? Israel is above the law. Hence, the Palestinians are always on probation, on good behavior. We have to prove that we deserve our rights. We have to prove that we deserve human recognition. The test, we have to demonstrate uh, that we are worthy, the test of merit. Uh, I'm sure you've read Dersovich's uh, horrible article posted on the Gatestone Institute website in which he says, Palestinians must earn the two-state solution. And of course, he proceeded to give a fake version of history. I have news for him. The Palestinians don't think that the two-state solution is a fair or just solution. It was a major, painful compromise by the Palestinians. So it's not our aspiration to give away 78% of our land. It is a compromise that we made in order to give our children a future and a life in freedom and dignity and to exercise our right to self-determination. And now Israel and probably the world uh, are not very keen on seeing it happen. We, I'll get to that later. Now, always blame the Palestinians in the blame game. I can give you many examples from the Clinton parameters even when there was discussion in Camp David in 2000, I was there. We were told, you will not be blamed. Give it your best shot. And I remember Yasser Arafat told them, we are not ready. The talks have not progressed enough 
to have a summit in Camp David. Clayton uh, Swisher is here, I don't know if you remember, right? He said, we are not ready. And both Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton said, give it your best shot, we won't blame you. <laughs> what happened later? The whole myth of the generous offer. Huh? We were blamed when there was no offer. I said, show me, show me a concrete offer on the table. There were all these different uh, groups discussing different issues in a fragmented way, but there was no generous offer that the Palestinians, and the Smith gained a life of its own, actually. Now, every time you hear an Israeli apologist, he or she will say, you see, the Palestinians refuse the generous offer. Uh, <clears throat> and we have to earn it, anyway always blame the Palestinians. We said that, uh, again, the roadmap. Remember the roadmap, 2002-2003? Sharon placed 14 reservations on the roadmap that totally nullified it, negated it. They came out and said the Israelis accepted the roadmap. The Palestinians didn't. The Palestinians accepted the roadmap knowing that it's not perfect or ideal. But we knew that, not an, uh, that Sharon was rejecting it. So the issue was that Sharon accepted it, and no even footnote about the 14 reservations, but the Palestinians didn't. I don't know where they get their version of history. Again, John Kerry's initiative on 2014, you remember when he tried this initiative, he tried to do more of the same, thinking that he will get a different result, or thinking that he might get one. Anyway, he promised, he said, that any party that scuttles or undermines or rejects or whatever the, the peace talks will be publicly blamed. So what happened? The Palestinians dutifully went to these negotiations, knowing full well that we took a decision not to go, frankly speaking, because there were no terms of reference, there were no clear objectives, there was nothing to, to tell Israel to stop settlement activities, to uh, respect signed agreements to release prisoners and so on. And John Kerry said, try your best. And he was given a verbal promise, an oral promise by the Israelis that they will minimize settlements, that they will release prisoners. So what did they do? Immediately they escalated settlements, they escalated violence, they shot a few people on, the, on checkpoints, huh? and then they refused to release the last installment of prisoners. So where is the blame? Both sides, they're not ready. What? The Palestinian leadership lost its constituency for going to these negotiations hmm? when they weren't assured of, of the substance and outcome. And the Israelis deliberately violated their commitments and obligations, and they weren't blamed. There were some leaks here and there that the settlements were bad. Now, we have also Ah, in that context, I have to mention this. It's a very racist statement that makes, statement that makes me very angry. Abba Iban said this, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. It has been used to bash the Palestinians and to feed these misconceptions and distortions forever. So every time you hear this, I think you have to reverse this. It's the Israelis that missed historic opportunities to make peace and totally destroyed the chances of peace. We're not on the defensive. We don't have to prove that we make use of opportunities because we never had one. And of course, the other terms, you know, like the light motifs of our reality have been shaped by the uh, um, Israeli lobby, like Hamas rockets raining down on <laughs> Israeli towns and villages. Have you heard this? And it's repeated verbatim by everybody in Congress and outside Congress. Nobody asks how many did they kill, and nobody asks how many Palestinians were killed by the Israeli army, and nobody asks about the siege and the assault and so on. It's as if people in Gaza decided to wake up one day and, and manufacture these homemade pipes and throw them out, out of the blue because they're terrorists by definition. And again, Palestinian uh, terrorism, incitement, and violence. Now, you cannot mention Israeli settlements without finding a false equivalence if, with incitement. Palestinians incite. Huh? Palestinians incite to violence. Palestinians think that their prisoners are heroes. 
and they are terrorists. So you adopt the language of the Israelis that everybody who's a Palestinian is a terrorist. But since 1967, Israel has imprisoned more than 800,000 Palestinians, including myself and many others of my friends and so on. I don't think there are 800,000 terrorists, people who did not acquiesce to the occupation or accept to have the, the spirit broken, these are not terrorists. <laughs> Israel has killed more than 75,000 Palestinians since 67. Who are the terrorists? Now again, there are new preconditions, the refusal to recognize Israel as a Jewish state, that's our fault. Either we become Zionists or we are not fit for human company. Um, again, any criticism of Israel is conflated with anti-Semitism. You've heard this before. So this is one way of censoring and silencing criticism. And the Palestinians are not a peace partner. We don't have a peace partner among the Palestinians. I can't tell you how many types of negotiations there were, and needless negotiations from direct to indirect to proximity talks to bilateral to multilateral to long-distance talks to... Um, what was it, exploratory talks, and at the end we even had epistolary talks, exchanges of letters, and we've been talked out, frankly speaking. But it was a good peace process because Israel used it as a cover to create facts on the ground, to negate the very substance and to destroy the objective of the talks. So here we are. Now, while the process is ongoing, never allow any issue critical of Israel to be brought before the UN. This is something ongoing again. Um, massive lobbying. I don't want to give you too many examples, but uh, we don't have time. I know I've uh, run over my time. Should I stop? Uh huh. Okay. So use the veto and at the same time protect Israel's impunity, enable Israel, but maintain Palestinian vulnerability. We shouldn't have access to international organizations or international law to protect our rights and our lands, but Israel has the full right to act outside the law. Uh, no sanctions or punitive measures from any party on anywhere, no accountability and so on. And this generated a culture of entitlement, exceptionalism, preferential treatment and privilege in Israel, which in itself justifies the subjugation, discrimination, violence and total captivity of the Palestinian people, and especially the continued military assaults on Gaza. Because Gaza lives have been, Palestinian lives in Gaza have been reduced to abstractions. They are numbers, huh? they're not human beings. Um, the murder of civilians doesn't count. It's the fact that there were 70 soldiers were killed, that's very important, but they were being attacked, bombed from the air, 92 families totally obliterated from the population register, it doesn't matter. And yet you blame the victim, because Hamas was using these people as human shields, and therefore they have the right to kill them. And of course the occupier is claiming self-defense. They are defending themselves against their own victims. I've never heard this logic before in world history. Then. The structure and participants, the Palestinian-Jordanian delegation, as you know, now it's back again, the whole issue of the Jordanian option, the alternative homeland, the uh, confederation, but it's, it's a Jordanian issue. Uh, when they said no Palestinians from the PLO and no Palestinians from Jerusalem, that's precisely because they didn't want a national address for the Palestinian, uh, Palestinians, a localized address. Uh, village leagues, communities, and so on, but not the right to self-determination and not Jerusalem. Um, again, there was a division of labor. I will skip a few things, but uh, that the US, the US is in charge of the political process uh, but Europe and the Arabs are in charge of signing checks. Hmm? So the, the decisions, political decisions are up to the US. It's a monopoly. Huh? And the others have to work on nation building because you see we have to prove that we deserve a state even though it is a right enshrined in international law, the right to self-determination. And uh, again, proof of merit. 
even then, for the U.S. to participate directly in the talks, it had to get Israel's permission. They couldn't participate unless Israel invited them to participate or asked them to participate with their approval. So Israel positioned itself as a gatekeeper to the peace process. And the Europeans followed step. They always had to give them inducements and advance payments and rewards and so on to allow them to play a role. If you are the occupying power and you are the gatekeeper, what kind of peace process is this? Well, you exclude others. Procedurally, the phased approach, conflict management, open-ended process. You can look at all these documents I gave you. Uh, and of course, the deal, we had to deal with administrative, technical, peripheral issues first, postpone the real issues, and get no guarantees on that. No mechanisms for arbitration, monitoring, and verification, although all negotiations should have those even though I still believe negotiations between occupied and occupied are illegal. They violate the Fourth Geneva Convention, by the way. And it has to be done between equal parties, but when you have a situation of occupation where one party exercises total control over the others, any agreement will be illegal because it will be reached under duress and with undue influence and force. And then the whole issue of pocket and proceed. This is happening with things like the, the uh, land swaps. There was never any agreement on a land swap, but somehow they decided that, yes, land swaps, because they want to keep the settlement blocks no matter what. All settlements are illegal, whether they are blocks, or whether they are outposts, or whether they are uh, uh, mobile homes, or whatever. They are all illegal. So we never agreed to having a settlement blocks as being legal or remaining. Now they talk about it as a foregone conclusion or that there will be land swaps. It was very difficult to accept the 67 boundaries. Now we have to give away Jerusalem, the Jerusalem environment, Ariel, Gush Atzion, all these. So they pocket and, and proceed, including the issue of refugees, by the way. And the process is a process for its own sake. Now, using prolongation and stalling, it is the Dennis Ross logic, I call it. Where so long as there's a process, God's in his heaven, all's well with the world. Let the two parties speak. And then Israel can do whatever it wants on the ground, which is an endless process. And it became an abstraction, it became a tool for Israeli uh, power and, and expansionism and so on and a cover for the occupation. So negotiations became an objective, not a tool to get somewhere. Now we are back at the beginning, as I said. I want to go through the... At one point, there was one point in which there was talk of 67 boundaries, two states. It started with George W. Bush and Clinton talking about two states. It wasn't, by the way, Obama who was bashed by Israel for mentioning 67. Uh, it was Clinton and George Bush. It was George Bush, actually, who talked about 67, and the two states will be surprised. Uh, and then now the cycle is completed. We're going back to all the issues of the functional approach, non-sovereign approach, gradual approach, uh, and so on. With Greenblatt, I just want to mention quickly uh, there are two things I cannot skip. The fact that we are not a demographic problem for Israel. Please do not accept this. We are a nation with our rights, with our history, with our culture, and we abide by international law. And I don't believe any other country in the world is allowed to discriminate against the people because it wants to maintain the ethnic or religious purity of its own entity at all. So we cannot be a demographic problem to scare the Israelis into giving us our little statelet or state minus, as they say. Now, they are busy superimposing greater Israel on historical Palestine, okay? What are the options if they destroyed, and they are destroying the two-state solution? Is it the ongoing state of apartheid that exists. And of course, they 
again, they wax hysterical when people describe them as being apartheid. Note what happened to Rima Khalaf, because now the UN is echoing the language of Israel at the behest of Netanyahu and uh, Danny Danone and all these people who formulate that language. You cannot use, if this situation will continue, then it will run its course as an ongoing perpetual occupation, conflict, extremism. Or are we going to have a qualitative shift? Maybe we need to de-Zionize Israel rather than Zionize the Palestinians. I have to stop, okay. I will talk later about what Greenblatt did, but I, don't, I wouldn't hold my breath. Thank you very Thank much. You. It's a pleasure to you. Thank you. Thank you. So I answered the mic.